0: everyone, and welcome back to Urban Wilderness. I'm your creator and host, Elise Michalow. This podcast follows me on my journey from wilderness survival novice to not a novice. I know that mastering these skills can take a lifetime, but this is a great place to start. That is talking about the book Bushcraft by Morris Kaczanski. The man himself is from Saskatchewan, Canada. He was born Morris, but his family was super Polish and because of their accents, he's legally named Morris. He grew up disappointed in how lame the Boy Scouts were, a true example, just just kidding. He enrolled in Sea Cadets and then eventually the Navy. This led him to operate outdoor education programs as an instructor. He also holds a valid pilot's license. Then in the 1970s, he became a professor in the Faculty of Physical Education at my alma mater, the University of Alberta. He was also a freelance editor for a major magazine and several agencies. He has a passion for books. Topics varying from natural history to camping and survival skills. Also books that are just compelling and well-written. It's rumored that he has a personal collection of a thousand books. Morse is a wilderness survival instructor, naturalist, and an accomplished author. He's published seven titles officially. Bushcraft is an instruction manual that starts by stating that a person can live comfortably with a pot, an ax, fire and the knowledge with which to use them. You must know your local resources, as well as your alternatives, to adequately meet your daily needs. For Morris Kuchansky said he wrote his book with people like me in mind, those who are lacking and seeking a humble wealth and knowledge. The very first topic with which he dives into is firecraft. In cold weather, you can test your own physical condition by touching the thumb and little finger of the same hand together. As soon as it becomes difficult or impossible for you to do this, you need to build a fire. When you need to light a fire the most, is in cold or wet weather, when it's often actually the most difficult, it's a cruel duality in nature, but Morse is thorough in his explanations of the four basics of fire lighting. The first is Ignition, matches, flint and steel, bow drill, and uh, a Bic lighter? Regarding matches, the longer they are, the more time you have to transfer your flame. Number two is establishment. Using the ignition method of your choice either and either fine or coarse kindling on your fuel source, quality fires will burn even in a strong wind or rain. The third is application. So cooking, warming, drying, repelling insects and signaling. The fourth is maintenance and moderation. Ideally, you want long periods between adjustment and stoking. This can be accomplished by producing a hotbed of coals. Because fire thrives on attention, he recommends gathering a wood pile as long and wide as you are tall and as high as uh, about half your height. Next is axe craft. The axe is the most important basic bushcraft tool. Like before, with a fire, a pot and an axe, you can live comfortably in the wilderness. Heavier axes are safer to use, but they're more cumbersome to carry. Also, sharpening a keen edge is vital. He states that one minute of sharpening can take five minutes off your chopping time. But take take care not to over-sharpen or to cut yourself when sharpening. I prefer to use a sharpening block, but a file can also get the job done. He also suggests taking your time to shop around for a good quality axe sheath, because carrying around a bare axe is to invite injury. Uh, And so is tree felling. It's a pretty great undertaking. If you can't wrap your right arm around the tree trunk and touch your left shoulder, the tree is too large to be felled without experience. Never take anything for granted when falling a tree. This means tree size as well as species and location. Treat each tree as an individual and evaluate it carefully. The third topic is knife craft. Knives are light, portable, and versatile. They are readily available for everyday tasks of wilderness survival. Moore says not to waste your time with a double-edged knife though. Get a properly sized knife for your hand size instead. Carbon steel is best. Stainless steel is also an option. Granted, it's of good quality. And good quality means it can hold a keen edge. He lists several alternatives for sharpening. Just use lighter and more frequent strokes. A coarser sharpener imposes needless wear if it's used too much. Switch to a finer sharpener later but it can prolong your sharpening process if you use it too soon. A honed and sharpened knife should shine like a mirror. Also make sure you have a knife that's appropriate thickness for your purpose. Do your research because the more you know about your knife, the less likely you are to cut yourself. The next topic is sawcraft. Careful selection, use, and maintenance of your ax is an important bushcraft skill but a good saw and an axe are complementary in wilderness survival. Moore states that in comparison to an axe, a saw blade is actually quite fragile. Any saw you purchase should have a guard to prevent injury, and a sawhorse can be used to reduce strain on your back when working on large trees. If your saw is trapped in a thick tree, you can free it, but he says you're better off not getting it stuck in the first place. So if the diameter of the log is greater than the throat of the saw, it will get trapped. Uh, sharp saw is invaluable. This can be accomplished with a file. Take care to make each stroke with the file as accurate as possible. Bind craft. So materials like sewing thread, towing cables, fishing lines, and rope, of course. Multi-stranded rope, uh, it's twisted clockwise for a Z-twist, so Z-twist, counterclockwise for an S-twist. The twist of the fiber determines the cord's strength, stiffness, and diameter. To avoid weak spots in the cord, the fibers should be staggered and the twists in the strands should be equal. Moore says that any changes in the thickness of rope should be as obvious to the rolling finger as they are to your eye. A basic rope has two strands. Adding a third one doubles durability and strength. The time and effort put into a rope should match its intended use. For example, a precise bowstring should take hours to make. Fine cords like those for fishing line, a fishing net, or sewing thread are extremely tedious to make, and he describes different materials in great detail. I highly recommend buying this book and reading it for yourself. My copy of Bushcraft wasn't expensive, and it wasn't hard to find. Sheltercraft is the last and by far the most in-depth section of the book. Shelter protects us from the elements, wind, rain, cold weather, including snow. A comfortable microenvironment can help supplement inadequate clothing or help shed cumbersome layers. It also enhances the effects of a warm fire. Specifics of a shelter are determined by need, raw materials, tools available, and the expertise of the builder. Moore states to use materials appropriate for the weather conditions. Framework and structure shouldn't shift or collapse as you toss and turn in your sleep. And even a crude layer of grass as a roof will provide better cover than nothing but steer clear of moldy moss and take care to use dry grass near a fire. There are many fire and shelter combinations, but the main factors to consider are scarcity of materials, limited time, and if your camp changes daily. Remember that sometimes an insulated shelter can lack working space. He touches on roofing a little by saying that trees peel easily, their bark can be incorporated into a roof, most bark curls when it's dries, and this can be prevented by placing it between poles. Morse assures that time spent on construction of a more elaborate shelter is offset greatly by a reduced fuel requirement for your fire. Next is Bushbeds. He lists several desirable materials and ways to arrange them to provide resilient insulation. Suitable materials are fine at the tip and no thicker than your thumb at the stem. A ground sheet is unnecessary if the compressed bed is four plus fingers thick. Also consider a hollow core or an elevated bed. Cold weather will demand an elevated bed. Radiance of a fire will warm beneath the bed and the resulting warmth will rise up through it. Hot rocks can also be rolled under the bed for rising warmth. Try, ever try sleeping on the frozen ground? I've, I've done it. Do not. Supplement beds with a mat or a sleeping bag in the wintertime. I have a mummy sleeping bag and that thing is next level insulated. Overhead protection. It's back protection that extends up over you. The best protection is compressed handfuls of dead branches covered in lichen. Boughs are most effective if first compressed between logs. Cold airflow can be prevented in the wintertime by banking snow. Angles matter. If your roof is made of ad- adequate material and it still leaks, it might not be steep enough. So from here on out, our different types of shelters he starts with the open fronted shelter simple construction without tools from the most readily available materials find the best site that you can assess your need for protection and it can also provide warmth by absorbing radiant warmth from the fire um keep as little space between you and your back protection as possible the book has really thorough and constant comprehensive diagrams on airflow uh, the deep open frontage shelter. Morse claims it this is inadequate for cold conditions because it's difficult to maintain uniform warmth within your shelter. It can, however, be used for warm and slightly cool environments. And useful supporting waterproof covers. I feel like most people have woken completely soaked in a tent or one point or another. It's unpleasant. So buy a tarp and try not to leave on an adventure without it. The partially enclosed shelter. It's less sensitive to wind and uses less fire fuel than an open-fronted shelter. But the offset is that you have to have a smoke hole and that loses warmth. Personally, it reminds me of an outfitter's tent, large enough for a portable wood-burning stove and an elevated bed. Truly living the dream. Smoke is a problem here since a low smoke level requires an elevated bed. Uh, You can raise your smoke level by creating a larger smoke hole. It's a compromise. Moore suggests adding a fresh air inlet to remedy this. So just a reminder that this is an inexpensive book with very comprehensive diagrams. It's an instruction manual. Some of the diagrams have smoke holes doubling as windows and skylights. I'm doing my best to try and do these shelters justice. These diagrams are truly dynamic, smoke, heat, airflow. The details of the design really give you something to think about. For example, Always consider the terrain on which you're building your shelter. I feel like it's also understated to consider your size. You are just as important as any other factor. The partially enclosed shelter with an open fire. It's a very efficient shelter because it provides large floor space with minimal care required. It's got enough room for you to stand, however, it's still easy to heat. And its design is very stable against wind. Consider an earth-covered shelter for its resilience during rainy season because of dripping and dampness. The fully enclosed shelter. Last one, the most efficient. Morse spares no details here, so I suspect it's his favorite. It captures the warmth of your body and your fire, helping you conserve fuel. But there is a problem with a lacking light source. Fires are open, stoves are enclosed, both have trade-offs, light, heat, A brightly lit shelter can be psychologically uplifting. It's tidbits like this that made bushcraft a hard book to put down. The famous igloo is a wonderful example of a fully enclosed shelter. It requires minus 15 degrees Celsius to avoid moisture and dripping. But it's better when fuel or tools to gather firewood are scarce. It takes, it always takes, way longer to build an igloo than to erect a tent but a properly built structure is easily warmed and it's windproof. He details construction of snow describing compacting snow and the use of ice crystals, things like having the warmer layers closer to the base to have them fuse with the cold ground. He actually compares fusing layers together to welding. Northern exploration in the snow is an inspired image for me, the Iditarod, the famous dog race in Alaska. I plan to reach that topic eventually, but I want to build a good base for that, the dog. Check back next month for my newest episode on the evolution of the dog. Um, just a little housekeeping. Things I skipped in the book were suspension of a cooking pot, detailed cooking techniques with diagrams, how to choose the right axe for your purpose, safe use of axes of different sizes falling characteristics for different trees, limb and sectioning of a fallen tree, detailed first aid for knife injuries, how a saw actually works and how to maintain it, different materials for making ropes and their uses, the birches, the conifers, the willows, shrubs, the moose, the hare, and supplementation of color photographs. I hope you enjoyed my summary of bushcraft by Morse Kachansky. Remember to follow me on Twitter at at urbanwildpod, and Instagram, at Urban Wilderness Podcast. I'll post some supplementary material, things I find interesting. As a novice, this is a pretty broad topic. I won't be posting content directly from the book, like diagrams, like I said, the book was inexpensive and it's commonly stocked in bookstores. At least in Canada it is, because Moores is a Canadian author, woof. But thank you so much for listening and I'll be back next month with an episode on a topic I truly feel passionate about, the evolution of the dog. Until then, remember all you need is a fire, a pot, and an axe, and the knowledge with which to use them. Goodbye for now.